I want to preach to you. I'm preaching today and next Sunday, and I'm going to just do a two-part sermon on the book of Nehemiah. And um, I've been reading through this book. It's in the Old Testament, reading through it the last uh, couple of months, really, and just so struck by so many things in this book. Um, And so I'm going to tell you the story of the book just to give us context, and then I'm going to pull out some stuff today about being a people who are mobilized, and then we'll talk next week about being a people who are building. Um, You know, there's one of my favorite verses in the book of Isaiah, actually, that's going to set the scene for this message. You'll have heard me probably talk about it before. It's in Isaiah 61, verse 4, and it's talking about the people of God. And it says, they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. You and I are here to rebuild. You and I are here on planet Earth to restore what's been broken. It doesn't take a rocket scientist. You can look outside your window and you will find hurt and pain and brokenness everywhere. And that's not because uh, somehow we're looking for negative things. That's just the reality of the world we live in, Uh, the reality of the country we live in, where we're talking about things around race and racism, when we're talking about things about gender and misogyny, when we're talking about things like COVID-19 and people losing loved ones, when we're talking about everything in our planet, we have this understanding as human beings that something is going horribly wrong. Uh, But I want to tell you, in his kindness, God is raising up the church not to be the morality police of the world, not to be nitpicking at where people are going wrong, not to cast judgment on where people are doing things that they shouldn't be. Unfortunately, as the people of God, we have taken that role voluntarily. It was never given to us, and it's time for us to lay that role down because it's distracting us and wasting our time from the role that we were given, which is go and rebuild, go and restore see things that have been broken down, things that are crumbling, lives that are crumbling, and find ways of coming alongside to bring strength and love and healing so that the cities can be rebuilt. And so in the next two weeks, we'll be talking about what it means to be a people who get to rebuild and then get on with the task of building. Because I don't know about you, but I'm tired of looking at things that are so hopeless in our cities and kind of shrugging shoulders and saying, oh, that's too bad. No, as the people of God, we were called and created to do something so the darkness that people are in turns into light because of the rebuilding that we do, that we bring in this city. It is a privilege. It is an honor. Time for us to start abdicating that responsibility as if our politicians are responsible for rebuilding not primarily the churches as if those who head up financial institutions are primarily responsible for rebuilding no it is primarily the responsibility of the church and we're going to talk about that I get a bit passionate about this I think you can understand that Nehemiah is a book 
all about rebuilding. In fact, in the, the Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah are two books that come together, and that's because they were actually written together. They were one two-part book in the original. And so it's always a great idea to read these books hand in hand. The reason being, if you read them together, you'll notice that in both books, there are three parallel stories being told. And it's important to see that because there's a pattern that we're being asked to recognize. And the parallel stories are you find the people of Israel in exile. They are in the land of Persia. So originally the people of Israel, they lost their land because they stopped following God. And God told them repeatedly, this will happen as a natural consequence of you not relying on my favor. But anyway, they didn't listen. And they lost their land. They went into exile by the Babylonians. And then the Babylonian Empire gets swallowed up in the Persian Empire, a part of the world that I was born in, by the way. So this is a personal story to me. I love it. But anyway, they get swallowed up in the Persian Empire. And so when we pick up the story in Ezra and Nehemiah, we're coming to a context where the people of God are in exile in the Persian Empire. And then there are three stories that are told. And in each one, God raises up one of the Jewish exiles and speaks to the Persian king to give them favor to go back to their homeland and to start rebuilding parts of their city. And the first exile to go back is Zerubbabel, and he picks up the broken temple and brings it to rebuilding. The second exile to go back is Ezra, and he goes back to restore the broken society. He's a teacher of the law, and he's literally rebuilding society. And then the third one to go back is Nehemiah, and he goes back to rebuild the walls of the city. And in each parallel story, you see one man raised up to do something very unusual, something that would require miraculous favor. God puts it in the heart of an evil king. He really was evil, but evil kings to give favor to this person so that this person not only gets to go back, but goes back with resources. They go back with a specific mission of rebuilding, each one a different targeting of society. They go back to rebuild, they do rebuild. And the interesting thing about each parallel story is that they end in an anticlimax. They end with what was built, built, but still something is not quite right because this story is saying to us, no matter how much humanity tries to rebuild, there's something that we need and it is the kindness and the presence of God because God is the ultimate rebuilder. And it's almost these stories in the Old Testament are saying to us, look forward to the New Testament. Testament, because in the coming of Jesus, the ultimate rebuilding will happen. And in the Old Testament, no amount of rebuilding can restore hearts because it's only with the coming of Jesus that hearts of stone gets re- get rebuilt into hearts of flesh. Aren't you happy that we're living in the time of the New Testament? We're living in the continuation of the book of Acts in the New Testament, which means you and I are empowered not only to rebuild from our human resources, but from heaven's resources because of our hearts of stone having been changed into hearts of flesh. We now have hope for society that it only won't be a surface level rebuilding, but hearts can be transformed and come into fullness of life again. It's a remarkable story in the book that we're picking up. And we're going to just look at the story of Nehemiah together. And Nehemiah, he starts with the king Artaxerxes is the king that he's with. Lovely name. And anyway, Nehemiah is cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah is actually in a really good, privileged 
position in society. He's, he would be wealthy. He has the ear of the king. We see that later as cupbearer of the king. He would be incredibly trusted by the king because cupbearer to the king had incredible influence in that moment, had one-on-one -on -one face time with the king, obviously had the downside of having to taste some things and if there was poison in there, there you know, there, this was a risky job, let's be honest. <laughs> But he was in a position of privilege in comparison to many, many, many others in his society. And so we see this guy, Nehemiah, and he hears some news from his homeland. Some Jewish exiles, who'd, uh, some Jews who'd stayed in the homeland come to Persia and they give word of Jerusalem. And he asks them, how's it doing? And they tell him, no, it's terrible. The city walls are still all broken. And Nehemiah is so broken by that news. He grieves and he weeps and he prays, and we'll look at that in a moment. And he asks God for some kind of favor with the king because he's so stirred by the brokenness that he's heard of. And he has this moment with the king where the king says to him, Nehemiah, why is your face so sad? Which incidentally, in that culture, that was not a good thing. If you appeared sad before the king, there was a death penalty to go with that because the king wanted happy, it's insane, but anyway, the king wanted happy people around him. So Nehemiah actually takes a huge risk, but he shows the grieving of his heart heart on his face and it's really inciting a conversation that he wants to have with the king and he pours out his heart to the king and he says to him how can I be happy when my people and my city lies in ruins and he asks the king for favor and we'll look at this in a moment and he has this great moment where he's praying and speaking at the same time which is something that we all need to learn to do and he asks for more and more favor with a lot of audacity, actually, and the king gives him everything needed and more. So he's sent back to his homeland to rebuild the city walls with an army guard alongside him. This is crazy. The king of Persia is like, have a few of my soldiers to make sure that you're safe and doing something over there in a country that I own. But anyway, I'm going to send you there. And he, he gets money and provision and all of it, letters of the king recommending him so that he can have safe passage, gets back to his homeland, some people there aren't very happy. And throughout the story, and we'll pick up on this more next week probably, but some people really oppose the rebuilding plan. They don't want to see the city rebuilt. But anyway, he goes there, he scouts out the land, he mobilizes the people. He gives them vision for what's coming and speaks testimonies to them, which is part of why we did what we did today. He speaks stories of the past so that they can be strengthened in order to getting up and doing what was always in front of them in the first place. I loved what Hannah said. Well, the provision was already in front of her, but it's in the coming alongside her and the testimony and the encouragement that suddenly her eyes are lifted to what is right in front of her to be able to do. And that's what happened to the Israelites. And they stand up, they start rebuilding the walls. Uh, we'll look at this part next week, but they rebuild the whole city. Um, there's incredible joy in the city. They recover the law. They read the law together. They uh, commit themselves uh, to God together. 
together. And there's this incredible fruition that comes. But like I said, the end of the book is essentially Nehemiah running around trying to get people to do uh, what it looks like to be a people rebuilt. He's like, what's wrong with you all? We've done this. Now, why are you all like making such a mess of things still? And it's because it's shouting to us. Surface level building isn't what you were made for. It is hearts being rebuilt that will transform everything. Anyway, that was a quick summary of Nehemiah. You guys are doing awesome. So, but the first thing I want to pick up from the story is that Nehemiah takes it personally. Um, Before I go into what that means, I want to tell you a few things about what that doesn't mean. Um, I remember sitting and talking with my parents a couple of years ago about stuff that had happened in their upbringing. And just like just talking about their normal home experience, loads of things. And I remember being really struck by the way my parents shrugged off things that in my generation, I'm technically a millennial, so I can say this, in my generation, we'd been taught to identify and seek healing on and counseling. For my parents, that's like an alien concept. Why would you go and speak to a counselor? Like the generation that went before us, in fact, generations that have gone before us, counseling, getting in touch with your emotions, it's like, it's a foreign language. It's like, why would you waste time doing that? Get over it. That's essentially the level of emotional wholeness that was there. And, and that's fine. We don't judge previous generations because the Bible tells us the kingdom of God is ever increasing. It's glory upon glory. And part of that means that every generation gets to build on what came before. And if we turn around and judge the lack from before, we'll actually never step into what we're made for. We need to understand that it's part of the rhythm that God put in place, that each generation has the privilege to build on previous generations if we don't turn around and judge what came before. So that was the level of emotional health in generations previously. Thankfully, in our generation as millennials, we're really encouraged. Some of us aren't millennials in this room. Uh, yeah, I'm not mentioning any names, but anyway. And but you need bifocals exactly. But anyway, the we are so in tune. We're encouraged to be in tune with our emotions. We're encu- encouraged to get healing. We're encouraged to all of, to do all of these things. But I want to just flag up something that can become a weakness in our generation, which is we take everything personally. Because what happens is we get so in tune with our emotions, and a friend of ours was talking about this to us, emotional fragility and emotional health are not the same thing. And in our generation, we've mixed those two two things up, and it's partly because we're judging what came before. So we're like, we're so healthy because we actually recognize our emotions. Actually not true. You can recognize your emotions and still be incredibly unhealthy because it depends what you do with those emotions that communicates whether you're healthy or not. And if all we're doing by being in tune with our emotions is taking offense at every tiny thing that happens, honestly, guys, if I took offense at everything that I could take offense at, I would not get up in the morning. It is completely paralyzing to live so in tune with your emotions that your, in, that your emotions master you rather than we exercise godly character by processing our emotions in a healthy way that allows them to alert us to things that are unhealthy. Then we process and go through forgiveness and we don't take on offense and we work through it to see the glory of God come through even our emotions. 
And so I just want to say that when I say take it personally, I don't mean let's take everything personally about being offended personally, because that's not what Nehemiah did. He didn't hear about the walls being broken and go, huh, doesn't the king realize I'm a Jew? And offense creeps in because actually this king is the one who's allowed these people to be in exile. There's lots of reasons, legitimate reasons, to take offense, to have a personal snub that you don't like about that person. He could have done it. He would have lost all authority for solution. Hear me, if you live in that way, you lose all authority for solution. It was only because he was able to take it personally in terms of, God, what can I do about this? How can I use my position? How can I lay down my life in order to see? It's because he took it personally in that way rather than personally in an entitled offensive way that he had authority to actually see something happen. We've got to be people who understand recognizing being in tune with our emotions does not equal health. That is a lie that our generation is speaking, and it actually paralyzes us. Recognize them by all means, and then figure out how to resolve them in light of the kindness of Jesus so that you have authority for solutions. So it doesn't mean I am offended by all things everywhere. Equally... It doesn't mean that I'm someone who becomes, uh, who takes on an identity of uh, taking up other people's cause. It can look very similar to what Nehemiah did, but the difference is what's feeding your identity. We all got friends like this where they take up every cause, but there's something weird about it because it almost reflects back on them the way they discuss it, the way they got offended on behalf of other people. All of that signals something that is more about them than it is about the cause. And we can start doing that. And that is often what worldly activism starts looking like. That You become more and more militant. You become more and more angry. You become more and more offended. Am I being too honest this morning? Because I feel like I'm hitting a whole lot of stuff. But you you live in a place of anger and offense on behalf of group this or group that. And whenever anyone says something that might be out of context, might be immaturity, you take it upon yourself to be offended. And suddenly, it's not about the cause, it's about your identity. That's what the world calls virtue signaling. And it actually is something where people are constantly saying, look at my identity. I'm the most woke amongst us. Yes, I even use that word. It's an identity thing that's brokenness. Again, if we live like that, we lose our authority for solutions because we must live out of the identity of being people of God. That must be the only thing that feeds us. If we walk from that place, we have authority for solutions. If we rely on other people's causes to feed our sense of significance, we have already lost any authority that we had for solutions. And we will be people who keep typing on our computers and keep talking about things that we have no authority to fix because we lost it when we lost our identity. As the people of God... Be in tune with your emotions and get them healed at the foot of the cross. Don't make offense who you are. And as the people of God, don't allow causes to feed your identity. 
Both of those things are dead ends. Let's allow God to speak about our sonship, about our daughterhood. And then from that place, take things deeply personally. And what this looks like is saying to someone who's broken, I see it, it matters, and I'm going to get in it with you, not because it personally impacts me, but because it impacts you and love moves me to do something about it. It means that I say to my friends of color, there is racism that is at work. I see it and I see your pain. I'm not just saying get over it or it's all in your head or you're making something bigger than it needs. No, God hates racism. He hates it. There is no room in the kingdom of God for racism. I want to be clear on that. And so as the people of God, no matter what color you are, we need to take this deeply personally. It matters. Are we aware of what's happening in our world, in our country? It's all over the world. But are we aware to the point that it moves us? Not in offense, but onto our knees in prayer and then asking, how do I pray and speak about this God? Because we've got to take it deeply personally. You'll know if you've spent more than 10 minutes with me that one of the big calls of my life is to see misogyny broken down and disappeared. I feel like that's one of the reasons God put me on the planet. That's why uh, for Julian and I, it's so important to lead together. It's why I wrote a book called Equal, which is all about what the Bible really says about women and authority, because misogyny is not just a concept that's happened out there in the world. It's a concept that's alive and well in the church, and God hates misogyny in the same way that God hates racism. This is a really important topic for me. And obviously, as a woman pastor, it's deeply, practically personal. But you know, what's been most powerful for me is when men who are in privileged positions say to me, I will come alongside you because this isn't just an issue for you. It is an issue for the people of God because what moves you moves me. Those moments have been the most powerful. I have friends on social media and I smile every time I see it because every time they see a moment where they can step in and lift women, they do. Does it impact them personally? Not at all. In fact, misogyny helps them. But they step into it not because it's something that practically impacts their lives, but because they are moved by compassion and they take it personally. We as a community need to take any brokenness personally, not to live in offense, not to make it our identity, no. But as the people of God to say, what matters for anybody else matters to me because we have seen how Jesus lived and Jesus is the one who modeled this. He made everything personal to him in terms of stepping in, taking the cost, bearing the burden, not because it personally impacted him, but because he could not walk by when someone else was personally impacted. And we'll talk about that more at the end of the meeting. So take it personally. Where are we time-wise? Lord Jesus, help me. Pray and speak. Pray and speak. If you look at the number of words that Nehemiah said to God, 
and then said to the king, you'll notice something really important. It's not a formula. Please don't count the words and do some kind of statistics on this. That would be a real waste of time. But the point is he did a lot more praying than he did talking. The most powerful social activism you will ever engage in is your prayer life. It's your prayer life. And so many of us view our computer screens as our call in life of social activism when we've spent about 10 seconds, if at all, in prayer over that same topic, you will have no authority to bring any solutions. You'll just be very loud. The most powerful social activism we can engage in as the people of God is to get on our knees and cry out for mercy for our nation, for the world, for the brokenness that we see. My prayer time, praying about racism, asking God for deliverance from that demonic stronghold, praying for God to lift up the poor and seat them with princes, that prayer time is the most profound impacting thing I will ever do. Do you think Nehemiah would have had the same response from the king had he never prayed about the problem in the first place? Of course not. It was the prayer time that set him up for a favorable response from a king who not only said, yes, you can go, but said, hey, let me send some of my people and send some of my money. Nothing that would have benefited the king. It cost the king, but somehow that prayer time set up an incredible breakthrough moment. I'd like to see him try without the prayer time and see the response of the king. And it's laughable because we know the story. So we're like, what kind of idiot would do that? We do that all of the time. We don't set anything up in prayer. And then we wonder why our angry messages over social media are not transforming hearts. Your angry messages over social media have zero power to transform hearts. Please stop typing. We've got to stop it. Let's take a step back and think what the world is seeing of Christians on social media. Angry, militant, but can't actually be bothered to do anything about anything. Just incredibly vocal, incredibly divided, incredibly annoyed with everything. I'm just like, stop talking. (laughs) Our social activism has got to be primarily rooted in our prayer life. And not a prayer life where we're like, destroy the enemy, kill those people. (laughs) Because that's not the heart of God. A prayer life that understands the mercy of the cross. We're both offender and offended. Go free. A prayer life that says, Jesus, you have the solutions for militant racism. You have a solution for neo-Nazi groups who want to kill off every person of color that they, you have a solution that doesn't look like burning them to the ground, but looks like setting them free from the hatred in their hearts. How do we do that, God? But listen up. Some of us only pray and use that as an excuse for a lack of courage. Use that as an excuse for a lack of commitment of our own resources. Oh, it's comfortable for me to sit on my couch. I'm just going to be beholding the face of God for the next three hours. But don't ever ask me to speak up for someone of color. That inconveniences me a little bit too much. Sorry, I'm not down with that. My social, Katya said that my social activism is prayer. That's all I'm going to, no, no, no. 
Nehemiah is a great model for us. He mostly prayed. But there came a point where his prayers tipped into him speaking. And in that moment, he does this beautiful thing of a dual pray and speak. It says, uh, I don't know where the verse is. Find it yourself somewhere. (laughs) It's two verses four and five. I prayed to God and I said to the king, It's like this simultaneous thing that happens, and we need to learn as the people of God how to have two-sided conversations permanently, how to be constantly in communion with the Holy Spirit as we're saying things to people. If we do that, we will see authority for breakthrough. Look out for favor, number three. This isn't a formula, but I just wanted to throw this out there because sometimes as Christians, we're like, the hardest path must be the most spiritual. And God's like, I am laying things out for you so beautifully. And you're constantly like, oh, that's too good. Must go this way. And he's like, oh my gosh, you're never going to get to your destination. Just like chill out. When God makes things easy, just quick prayer. In our simultaneous prayer moment, Jesus, is this you? Yes, I'll take the opportunity. Thank you. Right? Let's just get good at that. It doesn't mean that every moment of favor is from God. So we need discernment. I'm not suggesting that you follow the favor of man. If Jesus did that, he would, have been, he would allow himself to become king by force because that's where the favor of man in his day was trying to take him and he would have avoided the cross and we would not be here. So you've got to understand not every moment of favor is God, but neither is it true that no moment of favor is God. And so many of us live like that, as if we're allergic to favor. Nehemiah had the level of discernment because he'd done enough time with Jesus in prayer that when the king says, hey, let me give you all the resources, he's not like, oh, no, no. God's going to miraculously give me that. This is the miracle. He has the discernment to see it. And so we've got to be able to understand moments of favor, to get mature in how we view favor. We've got to be able to weigh it up and say, God, is this you? And if it's you, thank you. I'm jumping straight into it. Look out for favor and then ask him about it. And then joyfully follow it. Because God does prefer to lead us with favor. It's not his preferred way of leading us to lead us through hardship. We will go through hardship because that's part of a broken world. He doesn't need to throw more hardship our way. He understands there's a broken world. We're just going to find hardship all on our own. So his preference is to lead us with favor if we can just sit down and listen long enough. Look out for favor. Understand the power of your words. Nehemiah goes to his land and he calls the people by doing two things, by pointing them backwards and pointing them forwards. And we're to be a people that do this all of the time, just instinctively. He points them backwards by telling them the favor that he's had. He gives them testimony. Hey, guys, we've got this big job ahead of us. I'm casting vision for forwards right now. We're about to rebuild the city. It's going to take a lot of hours, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, but it's going to be awesome. He's pointing forwards to where they're going. He's clear on the subject of rebuilding. 
But he's not just saying, okay, off you go then. He's saying, before we go there, let me point backwards because it's in pointing backwards that you'll have the strength and literally the result of his testimony, it says that their hands were strengthened for the task. In pointing backwards, he puts fuel into the fire enough to last the journey. He's saying to them, hey, before we start, oh, no, no, hang on, you're going too soon. Just That's what I do with my toddlers all of the time. We're like, okay, we're going to go to the park, and Eva opens the door. I'm like, you're not even dressed. You have no socks or shoes on. What are you doing? Like, hey, hang on. As Christians, sometimes we're like, oh, vision cast, let me go. And it's like, no, no, wait. Let's just get fuel in our tanks for this. And you don't get fuel by looking to the right or to the left or any other thing. You look, get fuel by looking back, feasting on the faithfulness, miraculous provision of God, because it's that fuel that will catapult you into going forwards for your vision and your destiny. And so he does that for them. Let me see if I've written it where it was so that you can find it. I don't know. 2.18. The result is their strengthening of their hands, but it's because he casts the vision forward and then says to them, let me tell you what God has done up to this point. Let me share the story of favor. Let me convince you that the God who's calling us forward has already acted in ways that give us resilience for what's coming because they're going to need resilience. That's why it's so powerful having Levi and Hannah stand up here because for some of us, going forwards means that we needed to look back at their stories. We might not yet have our own stories. That's okay, piggyback of someone else's because that's how testimonies are supposed to work. They're meant to give you all the courage needed for moving forward. Julian and I didn't just Step one in our lives together in faith, go, oh, let's move to Boston. We've not got the finances. We don't really know anyone. James and Haisa, who were here, were stuck in South Africa, so we don't even know them. We, we didn't just do that as step one. There were loads of battles that we fought and seen the faithfulness of God over many, many years that gave us enough fuel and confidence to say, this is insane, but we've got enough goods in our backpack to keep us all the way through the journey. If you move forward too soon without having looked back halfway through, you'll wonder why you're doing what you're doing and you'll crumble in the overwhelming odds stacked against you because believe me, destiny always means that worldly odds are stacked against you. So you gotta be able to, with enough fuel in your backpack, start your journey so that in the middle bit where things just get tiring and you've lost the excitement of the moment and we've just moved to Boston and everyone's excited and it's so fun and a year in you start feeling like you're walking through mud and sinking sand and you're thinking oh good God I hope he's going to be good to us it's at that point, point where you take out your sandwich of the faithfulness of God and you picnic in that moment until you've got that fuel into you again you can only do do that if you're looking back at the beginning. If you're stacking into your backpack all the things you're going to need. If you don't have your own stories, ask someone else. Go on the church app and say, I desperately need a story of a miracle of healing. Anyone got one? Go on the app and say, I desperately need a story about financial breakthrough. Anyone got one? I've got so many stories of financial breakthrough for you. 
I've got so many stories of miraculous healing for you. I've got so many stories of the comfort of God in moments where nothing happened that I was praying for. I've got even those for you. Find anybody, but make sure you look backwards in order to be able to go forwards. Going to come in for a landing. I said to you before that Jesus is the ultimate rebuilder. Jesus made everything personal. He saw the brokenness of humanity and he made it personal, even to the point of dying on the cross. He made it personal. When we were coming to church this morning, in fact, every week, really, my kids do this, where they say to me, hey, can I take whatever toy it is to church? And I, Julian and I always say, absolutely fine, but it's your responsibility to bring that thing back. If you lose it, you lose it. And they kind of got into that that routine, they understand that their things are theirs to care for, and if they lose it, they lose it. It's not my job to buy it again or find it somehow. Even this morning, Eva's like, can I take my baby with her pacifier? Well, it's great, the pacifier is small, Eva. If you lose it, you lose it. It's your responsibility. And I felt like in worship, God was reminding me of that conversation I had with Eva and saying, isn't it good that I don't treat you that way? Isn't it good? That I don't say to you, you lost it, shrug my shoulders, sorry, your responsibility. Isn't it good that Jesus doesn't say to me, Katya, you made your bed, now you lie in it. Isn't it good that he takes even the things that we did wrong and he makes them personal on the cross in order to bring the solution for the problems that we created with our own brokenness. Isn't it a good thing? He is the ultimate rebuilder. And he never says to you and me, your mistake, your problem, you fix it. You lost that, sorry, I'm not waiting in to find it for you. I told you it was your responsibility. I even gave you 10 commandments. You didn't listen to them, your responsibility, sorry. That's not the heart of God. He sees our brokenness, even the mess that we have made. And he allows what moves us to do deeply move him. That's what the life of Jesus is about. That's why God in Christ became a tiny human baby, not because he was curious, but because he made your brokenness deeply personal. Because God reached out, he became human. He took on flesh with all of the complexity of that. He set his eyes on a cross that he knew he would carry. Not because he had to, but because he made what moves you deeply personal and he understood what price must be paid in order to provide a solution. He is the one who makes things personal. And he calls us as his people to recognize what he did for us and then to step in for the people of the world in exactly the same way. To understand what it looks like to be kingdom carriers. To understand what it looks like to share an inheritance with Jesus. To understand what the what would Jesus do bracelets really mean. Jesus would make things deeply personal from the purity of his understanding of his identity. Not taking offense, but stepping in the gap laying down his life, literally. 
in order to provide a solution. We're going to have communion together. Won't you stand with me? And there's uh, communion, I think, both on the right and the left. Am I right in that? No, communion's just over here. There's gluten-free options. Won't you just come? I'm going to keep talking, but won't you just come and help yourself um, to a communion pack if you would like? You don't have to. Communion is... um, Communion is grape juice and it's bread, and it's really the moment where we recognize Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. It's where we recognize that he allowed on the cross his body to be broken, his blood to be poured out. That's what the bread and the juice represents, his body and blood. We recognize that he, he laid himself down in order to provi- provide a way home for us. And so it felt fitting to, to celebrate communion together in this moment, to say this is what Jesus did. And as we eat and drink, do you mind opening this for me, please? Sorry. As we eat and drink, we're taking a moment to say thank you. Thank you for making my hurts, my brokenness, my sinfulness personal to you. Thank you for not saying to me, well, you did it, your problem, find a way to fix it. Thank you, Jesus, that you didn't say to me, Katya, you made the mistake. Hope you know how to solve it. But rather you allowed your body to be broken. You allowed your blood to be poured out. So let's just take a moment to take the bread, take the juice. For some of you, how I've described God is not how you've known Him. You might be here maybe the first time in a church, maybe your five billionth time in a church, but you might be suddenly thinking, I don't think I understood who God is and what it actually meant for Jesus to die on a cross for me. And this is a really good moment for you just to say, God, I want to know you. I want to know Jesus, this God who steps into my brokenness to bring solutions. I want to know you. And you can invite Him to overwhelm your life. You can invite His presence because God isn't theory. He is real and He's here today to meet with us. So I want to give you a moment for all of you who want to just say, Jesus, I want to know you. Just invite Him. You don't need me to say anything for you. I want to encourage you to say, I'm really sorry for the mess I've made. I don't want to live in mess anymore. I don't want to choose to be the one who solves my problems because I can realize now that I'm not very good at solving them. I don't have the power to solve even my problems, let alone the world's problems. And invite Jesus. Jesus, God himself to be responsible for solving your problems. (laughs) Give him ownership of your life. Give him lordship. That's what it means to say, Jesus, you're king. Essentially, I'm saying I am stepping off the throne of my own life where I'm the one who rules and reigns because that's terrifying. Because I know I don't have what it takes for all the things that I'm giving myself rulership for. 
So I'm going to step aside and I'm going to say, Jesus, you rule in my life. You be king in my life. You tell me what things to do and what not to do. And I will follow knowing that your heart is good and kind and you're interested in making me whole. Some of you, that's all you need to do this morning. But you might be a Christian who did that a long time ago, but you, you've stopped moving in compassion. You've become incredibly easy to offend or you've become someone who just doesn't care. If it's not personal to you, it doesn't move you. And in this moment, I really wanna encourage you. We've got a job to do. <laughs> We're here to rebuild a city. And to do that, we need to understand the kindness of Jesus to our hearts so that we don't carry offense. Offense will kill you. But so that we care enough to say, whatever this costs me, I'm happy to take it. How do I rebuild? And so I want to encourage you, if that's you, you just need to do some business with Jesus. I'm sorry that I haven't been caring or I'm sorry that I've just become too offendable. That's just become part of my identity. I'm the person that no one wants to speak to because I'm constantly offended and angry about things rather than bringing kingdom life. Jesus, we need your heart. <laughs> and I thank you that whoever we are, however we walked in this building, you're not irritated with us. You're not disappointed. Uh, you're not shouting at us, do better. But rather you're allowing us to experience your kindness because from that place, all things are possible. And so I invite you, Holy Spirit, come and fill each and every person in this room. Come and overwhelm us with your affection for us. Come and let the tangible love of God hit people even now. <laughs> that the peace and joy of the Spirit would be our portion. I ask Holy Spirit that you would lift off of people heavy burdens, heavy burdens of responsibility. The weight is too heavy for us to carry. If rebuilding a city isn't a burden that feels light, we've got to do an exchange with Jesus. He's not asking us to do the heavy lifting. He's asking us to listen to Him and He'll give us the steps forward. Hey, and so I just speak the peace and joy of God over every single one of us. I ask that our prayer lives would go through the roof. I ask that feast evenings wouldn't just be an evening in the church calendar that we go to, but we don't want to. No, feast evenings would go wild as we understand the privilege of being a people who pray together in order to see a city rebuilt. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Frequency. In order to keep this teaching and our other resources free, we rely on donations from people like you. If you feel led to give, head over to our website, Frequency.org, and click the Give button. You can find our other resources like blogs and videos on our website, or sign up for our mailing list where you'll receive exclusive content from us.